Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The coronavirus, now called COVID-19, is starting to impact the economy in China and also in Boston's Chinatown. After Chinese New Year, normally we are very busy. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. How the loss of business for Chinatown restaurants has roots in ignorance and possible racism. The desire to stay away from people who happen to have Asian faces, to stay away from Asian businesses. And a Harvard study outlines the long-term health risks for gunshot survivors. You know, any crowded areas like the mall the day after Christmas, stuff like that where I feel like something's going to happen probably triggers me to, like, that defense mode that I was in, just, you know, get away from the, the area that I'm in. We'll wrap up the show with the story of a man who was nearly lost at sea and kept tempting fate. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. The outbreak of the coronavirus isn't just having an economic impact in China, where it originated. It's also starting to affect Boston's Chinatown. WBUR's Adrian Ma explains. If you happen to swing by New Golden Gate Seafood Restaurant in Boston's Chinatown, you might be confronted with the worst sound you could possibly hear in the restaurant biz. Silence. On this weeknight, not a single customer is in sight. After Chinese New Year, normally we are very busy. Mei Dong is the cashier here. Right now, it should be at least around five tables or something like that, at least. But instead, Dong walks through a dining room that's empty. That is, except for a server who's sitting at a table with his head in his arms and appears to be sleeping. See? Is he awake? She says no customers, so there's no work to do, right? <laughs> so you see, that's really, really slow. Other shops on the block also say the normal flow of customers has evaporated especially after recent news that a Boston man who traveled from Wuhan, China, was the state's first confirmed case of coronavirus. And similar scenes are playing out in Chinatowns in San Francisco, Houston, and New York. Fear of the new virus is a drag on business. Across Beach Street, things are a little better at a restaurant and bakery called Great Taste. There's a small crowd, and among them is a guy named Stephen Chen. Do you come here a lot? Yeah, that's my restaurant. Oh, this is your restaurant. <laughs> All right, it's your restaurant. On top of owning the place, Chen also heads up the Chinatown Business Association. People is worried. That because affecting everyone. Like, if I have no business, I have to lay off some employee, right? Chen's worried about history repeating. In 2003, when a different coronavirus called SARS broke out in Asia, a lot of people stopped coming to the neighborhood. The mayor had to hold a publicity lunch to urge people to come back. And this time, Chen says he's lobbying the city to make a similar show of faith. Because a lot of people, Chinese and non-Chinese, they seem afraid. He says, just look around town at all the people wearing face masks. No, I don't like that because 
then you think it's not safe, stay home, right? You're scaring the people. There has been a lot of fear around the novel coronavirus, and we need to be aware of these fears and not let them get the best of us. That's Dr. Jennifer Lowe, medical director for the Boston Public Health Commission. Right now in Boston, the risk of getting the flu is significantly higher. And the flu is everywhere. You could get it at work, at school. If you have kids, you could get it from them. So we should be afraid of kids. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) No, that is not what I'm saying. I think Just kidding. The children are our future. The point is, if you live in the U.S. right now, your chance of getting the coronavirus is extremely low, whether you're in a Chinatown or not. Mei Dong at New Golden Gate Restaurant hopes customers hear that message and start coming back. So it's very hard, very difficult time to, to do right now. Oh, I hope that turns around for you. I, I hope everybody can come back and then to eat and then to enjoy. <laughs> if they don't, there may be a lot more slow nights like this one. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adrian Ma. Because the coronavirus originated in China, some people are treating Asian Americans with intolerance, suspicion, and at times racism. That's what Paul Watanabe says. He's a political science professor and the director of the Institute for Asian American Studies at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Perhaps it's based on ignorance and a lack of knowledge about what's going on, but some people, sometimes the floodgates of racism or misunderstanding are opened up. And I think that may be reflected in the uh, partially the response, the desire to stay away from people who happen to have Asian faces, to stay away from Asian businesses in areas that seem to be uh, heavily occupied, like uh, Chinatown with Asian uh, people and businesses. So let's talk about this idea of of ignorance first. Um, so what would you say to somebody who says, look, this isn't about race. I'm calculating risk that the outbreak is widespread in China. There's an increased chance of contact with people from China and Boston and Chinatown, they might say, um, than other places in the city. So I'm, I'm just being logical. What would you say to somebody who said that? The extent to which individuals make individual choices of how they wish to and who they wish to associate with, you know, I can't speak to that. I think in some ways it does reveal ignorance. Uh, It's not going to protect individuals, and the level of threat is not that great going into Chinatown or Chinese businesses or et cetera. What I find much more disheartening is the extent to which individuals, and there's been examples of this, have, for example, bullied high school kids about the shape of their eyes or complaining and, and making all kinds of stereotypical notions about what they eat and and how clean, clean they are. Or, for example, some of the experiences we've had even on our own campus where we had one of the early cases of the coronavirus that was detected in the United States amongst our students here at UMass Boston. I've heard reports from students that some Asian students, Asian-American students including amongst them, feel uncomfortable in class, that professors have told them that if they merely cough in class to leave the room, and for example, in one case I was told, and I haven't verified it, that a professor soon after the virus told his Asian students that they probably shouldn't uh, shouldn't remain in the class. And that sort of level of sort of misunderstanding, that's misunderstanding that borders on intolerance and ignorance and racism. And isn't it true, too, I mean, we we heard it in the story before that, you know, this idea of, let's say, avoiding businesses in Chinatown really 
isn't that logical because the flu is a, is a way greater threat right now. You know, that's a common formulation in American life. For people in the United States who look Asian, who may trace their ancestry to Asia, the line between where their ancestors came from and here in the United States is often blurred. People are perceived as perpetual foreigners, so tied to what's happening in their countries of origin. Here, for people in the mainstream society, particularly those of European descent, the line between where they came from and here in the United States is fairly strong and a, and a stark one. You know, if we have something like German measles, for example, we don't sort of condemn all people of German descent and consider them to be suspicious and treat them differently. And there's not a host of racist beliefs that are generated about those populations, and, and properly so. And it reflects something about the treatment of non-white peoples, including Asian Americans historically and in the current crisis to some degree. Paul Watanabe is a political science professor and director of the Institute for Asian American Studies at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Professor Watanabe, thanks so much for talking. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. The dwindling field of Democratic presidential candidates has left New England and moved on to Nevada and South Carolina. In case you missed it, it was a tight race in the New Hampshire primary, with Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders taking the win, followed closely by former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. WBUR's senior political reporter Anthony Brooks has more on the results and the fallout. Thank you, New Hampshire. Maybe it was a long night and he was just ready for bed. Or maybe he did it to send a clear message to Buttigieg that he won. Whatever the reason, as more than a thousand ecstatic supporters shook the gymnasium in Manchester, Sanders took the stage to claim victory, while Buttigieg was still addressing his supporters in Nashua. This victory here is the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. It was a far cry from the blowout victory over Hillary Clinton four years ago, but a win is a win. It established Sanders as the Democratic leader for the presidential nomination. And this is a movement from coast to coast, which is demanding that we finally have an economy and a government that works for all of us, not wealthy campaign contributors. Sanders, the 78-year-old Democratic Socialist, the oldest candidate in the race, finished just ahead of 38-year-old Buttigieg, who's the youngest. Speaking to his supporters in Nashua, Buttigieg congratulated Sanders on the senator's strong showing and promised to continue his campaign. Buttigieg offered a message of moderation and unity while jabbing Sanders' plans for political revolution. In this election season, we have been told by some that you must either be for revolution or you are for the status quo. But where does that leave the rest of us? While Buttigieg built support among moderates, independents, and what he calls future former Republicans, Sanders counted on committed progressives and legions of younger voters like Catherine Lockridge of Durham. I was between him and Warren for a long time, and then I realized that he's been probably the most consistent out of all the candidates, so I trust him the most. 
Senator Amy Klobuchar supplied the other dramatic storyline. She impressed voters Friday with a strong debate performance and then built momentum, or what became known as Clomentum, which carried her to a dramatic third-place finish. And tonight in New Hampshire, as everyone had counted us out, even a week ago, thank you, pundits, <laughs> I came back and we delivered. Over the past few days, Klobuchar made a case that a pragmatic progressive with a record of winning in red counties in the Midwest offers the best chance of beating Trump in November. Our country cannot take another four years of Donald Trump. The rule rule of law can't withstand another four years of a president who thinks that he is above it. Klobuchar appealed to moderates like Barbara Reed of North Swansea, who was impressed when she saw her in Keene over the weekend. Initially, I was very much in favor of Elizabeth Warren, but she is a moderate, which will appeal to more broad spectrum of voters. Warren, who was leading in many polls through last summer and the early fall, lost the support of Barbara Reed and finished a distant fourth. She addressed her supporters early in the evening and vowed to carry on, insisting that she's the candidate who can unite a fractured Democratic Party. Warren says the contest for the nomination is just getting started and that her campaign is built for the long haul. We're two states in with 55 states and territories to go. We still have 98 percent of our delegates for our nomination up for grabs. And Americans in every part of the country are going to make their voices heard. Warren finished just ahead of Joe Biden, who skipped out of New Hampshire before the votes were even counted, and headed to South Carolina, where he's still leading in the polls and still hoping the state's black voters can give him a win. New Hampshire made clear that Sanders is the frontrunner for now, but leaves many questions unanswered. Can Buttigieg continue to be viable in the South, where he has scant support among African Americans? Can Klobuchar, who lacks money, push beyond New Hampshire? Is Biden still viable? Can Warren reignite her campaign against all odds? And can anyone unite a divided party? For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Anthony Brooks in Manchester. Coming up, a Harvard study outlines the long-term health risks for gunshot survivors. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. There's a new study from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston that says... People who have survived being shot experience high rates of long-term health issues, more than survivors of car crashes. Reporter Ryan Lindsay from the public radio collaborative Guns in America has more. Shooting survivors from three trauma centers in Boston told researchers just how much their lives had changed after being shot. 68% reported experiencing daily pain and 59% had been back to work. 
Many screened positive for PTSD or said they had trouble with things that used to be easy, like walking, using the bathroom, driving, or showering. Here's Dr. Juan Herrera Escobar. Most of the firearm injury survivors are really struggling to come back and, and have the life that they used to have before the injury. He says the study highlights that gunshot survivors are patients that have special needs when it comes to their recovery and rehabilitation once they're discharged from the hospital. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ryan Lindsay. Tyreek Marquez was shot in the head by a stray bullet. He was seven at a parade in Hartford, Connecticut. Tyreek is now 18 and a college student. And here's how he remembers that day nearly a decade ago. I was already in the house and uh, we had went out back to get my sisters because it was getting dark outside. And when we started to go walk and look for them on Main Street, um, we heard shots. And this was Main Street in Hartford? Yes. Yeah. So we heard shots and we started to run. And from there, once I got into the crowd, and uh, I, I was hit. And from there, that's all I just remember waking up in the hospital. What was recovery like for you? Um, recovery was probably the worst of it because I had to learn how to uh, walk again and I had to learn how to do certain things only being able to use one side of my body. And you had to learn to use one side of your body because the left side is partially paralyzed, is that correct? Yeah, I have. Uh, I was diagnosed with partial paralysis. Now you've spent, it's been over a decade, so you've spent more of your life walking with some partial paralysis. Does it feel just like how life has always been or do you still have memories of how it was before um i have like very slight memory of how how life was before um i had got shot but like honestly it's like it kind of feels like this is how life has always been mm-hmm. um this study found that sur- uh, gunshot survivors experience long-term health issues um, including an impact on mental health. Can you relate to that at all? Um, I feel like I can relate to that probably in the under PTSD, only because certain things trigger memories and flashbacks, like parties, um, you know, any crowded areas, like the mall the day after Christmas, and stuff like that, where I feel like something's going to happen, probably triggers me to, like, that defense mode that I was in, just, you know, get away from the, the area that I'm in. Because your injury has left you partially paralyzed, do you find that people notice and comment? And is that annoying or does it feel, how do you feel about that? There's never any really rude comments or like, there's never nobody like, you know, trying to pick on you or clown you. Most people, they would just, uh, like, just come up to me, and they would just ask me, like, if you don't mind me asking, that's the, that's always the, the giveaway. I already know what they're going to mm-hmm. say from there. So they always say, if you don't mind me asking, um, why do you walk like that or what happened to your arm? It's either one or the other, and I just give them the same, sto- I give them the same answer, and they're every, they're always, they always become shocked. And they're like, you know, like, they ask me how did I survive, and I never have an answer for them. And what, what's the same answer that you give everyone? I, I'm blessed. That's that's all I can tell you. Like, and that's how you feel. Yeah, and I kind of appreciate people asking me what happened more than I appreciate them staring. I don't like being stared at. So if you ask me and I can just tell you, and you can just go about your day, then I rather that. Yeah, 
how how do you feel like your experience has impacted um, what you want to do in in the future, how you um, interact with fellow gunshot survivors? Um, I think that my experience has um, probably helped me to help others open their eyes up and really show them that, you know, that the community that we live in, it, it shouldn't be as normal as we make it seem to hear gunshots or to lose people or to know people who's gotten shot. And the thing is, I know a bunch of people who've gotten shot, and I'm just another person on their list of people that they know who's gotten shot. And now I don't think that it should be like that. Tyreek Marquez, thanks so much for talking. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Homelessness rates are down in the U.S. That's according to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's point-in-time counts, which calculate the number of homeless people in the country on one day each year. Homeless populations are particularly concentrated in cities on the West Coast and in the Northeast. Boston Mayor Marty Walsh is revamping the city's plan to end chronic homelessness after the city missed its goal by the end of 2018. And one of the reasons they missed it is lots of people are coming to Boston from places outside of the city and from other states for shelter and services. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker has the story. Liana Ramos had no ties to Boston before she ended up on the streets here in her late 30s using heroin and fentanyl. She had lived her whole life in New Bedford. I had a traumatic experience. A trauma. My mother called the ambulance. They came, took me, and dropped me off out here in the psych ward. And then the psych ward said, I'm okay. They don't need me there no more. I can't stay there no longer. And they dropped me off at the shelter. Ramos says she had no options in Boston other than that shelter or the streets. Her only money coming in was $500 a month in Supplemental Security Income, or SSI. How can you afford an apartment at $500 a month? So I stayed out here, and now look at I ended up using it and relapsing at 38. And I OD two times already. Ramos is now 46. We find her outside Boston Healthcare for the homeless in the South End. She's sitting in a wheelchair she uses to push around her belongings. She's styling her hair with gel as we talk. Ramos is one of a few dozen people milling around. Several are clustered at the far end of the building. Some of them are injecting drugs. But then security guards make them clear the area. I'll be right back. I gotta get dosed. 52-year-old Janine Day says she's going to get her methadone treatment nearby. Day was born in Boston, but lived in Revere, Lynn, and Beverly before she became homeless about 12 years ago. She says she and her now ex-husband got caught up in drugs. That led to a criminal record. The state took away her kids. Day says she knew she wanted to be in Boston when she found herself without a home. It's just easier. Everything's walking distance. You can eat free. You can eat. (laughs) From... Rosie's Place, the churches feed you. City officials say in recent years, their data has consistently shown more than 50% of the people staying in Boston's adult emergency homeless shelters last had a permanent residence someplace other than Boston. About 25 to 30% of those people are from out of state. The percentage of people coming from out of town when homeless is significantly higher than in some other big cities, including San Francisco and Seattle, according to those cities' data. What was the last place that you lived outside of Boston? Oh, I was just living up in Maine. 
When people enter Boston's emergency shelters, they often answer questions including the zip code of their last permanent residence. The city's largest homeless services provider, Pine Street Inn, says in 2019, people came to the organization's shelters from more than 150 Massachusetts cities and towns and from around the country. Pine Street's president and executive director, Lindia Downey, says people cited lots of reasons. The issues were as complex or as simple sometimes as there's no shelter in the town I live in. Somebody said go to Boston. Maybe someone went into treatment. A treatment bed was available in Boston. People who are homeless are drawn to Boston because of public transportation. They're drawn to the health care and the many services available to help people get back on their feet. But Downey says it's harder for people to regain stability when they leave the area where they have connections. We know that if people have good family support or some social support network, they're more likely to stay out of homelessness. But when you don't have something available for people in their hometown, it makes it much, much harder for people to reconnect and get out of homelessness. Boston is known for sheltering the vast majority of people who are homeless here. Just 2% of the city's homeless population was unsheltered during the annual homeless census last year. The national average for major cities is 37% unsheltered, according to the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Boston officials and advocates stress they help everyone who arrives at their doors. But they say they'd like to see a more regional approach to homelessness. There's really endless need, and um, unless everybody is housing everybody from their community, we're going to see continuous inflow into Boston. That's Lila Bernstein, advisor to the mayor for the initiative to end chronic homelessness and deputy director of Boston's supportive housing division. Bernstein says over the last four years, Boston has housed more than 960 adults who were chronically homeless. And that's on top of the 1,200-plus veterans the city has helped house, many of whom were chronically homeless. That means homeless for at least a year, or having four episodes of homelessness totaling 12 months over a three-year period. The person also has to have a disabling condition. The number of people who are chronically homeless in Boston now is 19% lower than when the city started its initiative, according to Bernstein. But what we imagined was we would work really hard on housing some of the most vulnerable, some of the people really stuck in our system, and that we would start to see the number of people in shelter on a given night shrink. And we're not seeing that. Why did you come here when you became homeless? I've changed my life. To change your life? Yes. Javier Rosario is from Philadelphia. The 41-year-old says when he found himself without a home four years ago, he decided Boston was the place to go. Did you hear anything about Boston being a good place if you're homeless, like to get help? Yeah. More people say you like they come up program for housing. So you even, you even heard that in Philadelphia, that Boston's better in terms of helping you get housing. Yes. When we met Rosario, he said he was working full-time as a cook. He was receiving medical care for conditions including post-traumatic stress disorder, but he was still staying at a shelter. Again, Pine Street Inn President and Executive Director Lindia Downey. I think sometimes people think they come into shelter and they get to be on top of a wait list for housing. That's not true. Downey and city leaders point out, despite all of the efforts to help people who are homeless find housing, Boston is still an extremely expensive, tight market. There isn't enough deeded affordable housing or permanent supportive housing for people who've been homeless. It can take a year or more to get housed. But other cities are also struggling to keep up with the influx of people looking for a place to stay and ultimately a home. Hey guys, how are you? Quincy is one of them. 
At the emergency shelter Father Bill's Place, the band Boston is playing in the cafeteria. Some clients are awaiting lunch or resting because of medical issues. The shelter serves people from 41 South Shore communities, but Father Bill's president and CEO John Yaswinski says people show up from cities and towns beyond that area. We've really become that safety net of other systems of care. Over 20% of the people that come here get discharged from other state systems of care. Other shelter providers say the same thing. They're referring to people coming out of prisons and jails, state mental health programs, private psychiatric hospitals, and foster care with nowhere to go. Yaswinski says there's a revolving door between addiction programs and the shelters, which means the system is failing the most vulnerable people. They're coming in and they're struggling with an addiction. We'll get them into a treatment program. They'll go to a detox. Maybe they'll go to a three-month program. But sad to say, there isn't anything at the end for them. And then they end up coming back here where they're trying to stay sober and they're sleeping next to somebody that's actively using right now. People actively using drugs or alcohol can't stay at many of the emergency shelters around the state because of rules requiring sobriety. They often end up heading to other shelters that will take them in even when intoxicated. People who run those facilities, including Pine Street Inn and Father Bill's, say meeting people's needs, wherever they are, is the way to end long-term homelessness. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lynn Jolliker. That story is part of a four-part series on homelessness. The entire series is at WBUR.org. Sticking with those HUD homeless numbers we talked about earlier, while the trend of homelessness is declining nationally, Maine saw an increase of 8% from 2018 to 2019, and it's actually seen a steady increase over the past two decades. Portland is currently working through the long and contentious process of building a new emergency shelter. But for people dealing with mental illness or addiction, about 20 percent of the homeless population, emergency shelters that mandate counseling or sobriety just don't work. So a new approach has emerged, low barrier, permanent housing with no strings attached. It's called Housing First. And as Maine Public Radio's Nora Flaherty reports, experts say that's part of a larger strategy to save lives and in many cases, money. Don Wade's apartment at Houston Commons in Portland is small and cozy and packed with art, family photos, and a 32-pound black and gray cat named Jupiter. He's my baby. So spoiled. He gets tuna. But Wade and Jupiter haven't always lived together. For about four years, Wade was homeless, living on and off the streets in Maine and Massachusetts, so she had to rely on friends to take Jupiter in. I had lost um, a few jobs. Uh, My mental illness got a little bit worse through the years, and I'm an alcoholic. So my life was falling apart. I couldn't keep a job. She sometimes stayed at Portland's homeless shelter, but she says it was hard. It's kind of scary sometimes. You know, um, the drugs, um, the, the stealing, the ODs, you know, not being able to sleep at nighttime because people are talking, they're in and out of their bags with the plastic noise, carrying bags everywhere you went, you know, and the bags get heavy. Wade says her life now is very different. I could take a shower anytime I want, eat my own food, take a nap in the day. I wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning. You know, instead of like a normal person gets up at 7, I like to hear the birds in the morning, look out my window, and have peace of mind before everybody else comes to. But it's it's the blessing of knowing that you're, I'm safe, you know, I'm secure. Wade is part of the homeless population that's considered most vulnerable, the 20 percent who are sick or have mental health problems or who are addicted to alcohol or drugs. 
Advocates say these people are the least likely to do well with requirements like sobriety or medication compliance, and they're also the most likely to use emergency services and to die while living on the street. Anything could have happened. Rape, um, OD, dying, I mean, anything. What we were getting exhausted by emotionally and physically and spiritually is putting on memorial services for people we had known for years and years who had died on the streets. Mark Swan is the executive director of the homeless services agency Preble Street. He's been working with homeless people in Portland since 1991. He says after years of using an approach that required people to meet certain benchmarks before they could get housing aid, he and his colleagues decided to try something new in the early 2000s. And he says the deaths of chronically homeless people, who he and his colleagues knew well, were a major motivation. We said we have to do something different. We have to do something better than just putting on these sad little memorial services in a soup kitchen. Housing first is exactly what it sounds like. The idea is that people do better when they have permanent housing, and then they're more likely to access services like counseling and rehab. For some, this approach seemed counterintuitive. Why reward people who can't stay sober or reliably take their medications with a place to live? But the traditional strategy clearly wasn't working either. So Preble Street worked with the affordable housing developer Avesta and the Portland Housing Authority to create a housing-first building complex. Logan Place opened in 2005 with 30 units. There was a lot of skepticism. It was a big risk, I think, for all three organizations. We talk all the time that that was a transformational you know, moment for this agency, literally the night it opened. Swan has called that night the best of his career. And today, Preble Street operates three similar residences that provide permanent housing and services for 85 people who were once chronically homeless. Gil Gagne is one example. At Houston Commons, he paints for five hours a day. It makes me relax. I suffer from PTSD and severe anxiety. And my psychiatrist told me if I painted five hours a day, I wouldn't have to take medication. When Gagne was homeless, he says he spent many nights at Portland's shelter, which is often overcrowded. When you have PTSD and you wake up with someone's arm across your chest, it kind of messes up your whole day. And the continual stress of homelessness makes it hard for people like Gagne to survive on the streets. But there are hundreds like him, and spots for housing first units are limited. So when one opens up, a committee whose members work with chronically homeless clients meets to go through a list of names of people who could benefit from stable housing. Swan says it's a brutal process. It feels almost like playing God. If you don't get one of those 30 units, it hurts our heart because we think we may be not able to help that person um, and they may lose their life. Housing First still meets with resistance, but at this point it is generally recognized as a best practice for getting people who are chronically homeless off the street for good. The city of Portland has committed to a Housing First approach as it plans for its emergency shelter. Ultimately, Housing First can also save communities money. For example, the Maine State Housing Authority found savings of about $23,000 in one year for the tenants in Logan Place versus money spent on jail, emergency rooms, detox centers, or mental health treatment. But Housing First isn't a cure-all. Swan says it's only part of the solution to homelessness. I've worked and lived in Portland for almost 30 years, and I've never seen so many people sleeping outside. So, you know, again, we can work on all these solutions, but... We still need shelters, um, and we still need shelters to be accessible and have the capacity to support people in an emergency situation. Elsewhere in Maine, Bangor, Brunswick, and Ellsworth offer similar programs, and around the state, agencies work to get people into less formal versions of Housing First. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nora Flaherty. (music) 
After the break, an incredible tale of survival at sea. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. We're stepping back in time to more than 100 years ago in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Back then, there were hundreds of fishermen who went to sea and never returned. That would happen every year. Howard Blackburn should have been among those fishermen lost at sea, but instead, he became a local hero. Independent producer Matt Frassica has Blackburn's story. Two men in a small boat on a winter morning, somewhere off the coast of Newfoundland. Tom and Howard. They pulled up a fishing net full of halibut, enormous fish, hundreds of pounds each. Tom hauled in the net, and Howard grabbed each fish and clubbed it over the head to kill it. Around them, other men worked in other boats. In the distance, they could see the schooner they had sailed to Newfoundland. The storm came up quickly. The other boats disappeared. Tom and Howard started rowing back to the ship, but they couldn't see it through the snow. Night fell and the snow let up, and they could see a light in the ship's rigging but the wind and the waves kept pushing them away. We put every ounce we had on the end of the oars. No use. The wind was too strong and the sea too rough. The vessel's light stayed just as far away. They set anchor to wait out the wind. All night, waves filled up the boat as fast as Tom and Howard could bail it. At daylight, we looked for the vessel... There was no vessel. Howard and Tom were both from the Atlantic coast of Canada. Tom from Newfoundland, Howard from Nova Scotia. And they had both gone to Gloucester, Massachusetts, to join the fishing fleet. Gloucester was the center of the North Atlantic fishing industry, big business, back when the ocean was teeming with fish. And dangerous business. In 1883, the year Tom and Howard lost sight of their ship, 209 fishermen from Gloucester died at sea. Many left families behind. Tom and Howard took turns bailing out the boat and bashing ice off its sides with the bat. Howard took his thick mittens off to get a better grip. The next minute, he looked around for the mittens in the boat. Tom had pitched them over the side in a baler full of water. Tom pointed to Howard's hands. They had turned white. What would happen if they froze up, if we lived through the gale? Tom would have to row ashore alone, or if the vessel should chance to come along and pick us up, they would find one man at the oars and the other sitting like a dummy on the thwarts. Howard's hands were freezing solid. 
Slowly, he wrapped them around the oars, making two frozen claws. There now. I'll be ready to do a dory mate's full share. As the second night fell, Tom stopped bailing. He only said, what's the use, Howard? We can't live till morning, and we might as well go first as last. Howard kept bailing all night. By morning, Tom was dead. The wind had stopped blowing. Howard slid his frozen hands onto the oars and started rowing. He rowed all day and all the next day. By noon on the fourth day after the storm, Howard saw land. Around dark, he spotted a shack on the bank. It was abandoned and full of snow. He spent the night pacing, trying not to fall asleep, eating snow to quench the thirst he had built up over four days on the water. The next day, Howard rode up a river and found a tiny village. This was Little River, Newfoundland. A family took him into their log cabin and dressed his hands. It took days for them to thaw out. And when they did, Howard lost all of his fingers, except a stub of both thumbs. The family shared their food with Howard, But the town of Little River was close to starvation that winter. All they had to eat was flour, cornmeal, and salt cod. Villagers started eating their dogs. Howard's story began to spread outside of Little River. A ship of seal hunters came to see him. They left behind enough food to keep the villagers alive until spring. On April 23rd, four months after he'd gone astray, Howard was bundled up in a sail and carried onto a boat on his way home. Howard made his way back to Gloucester. In his absence, he'd become a celebrity. Those other 209 men lost at sea that year weren't coming back. But Howard was the one who lived. He'd come back from the dead. The owners of the halibut ship he'd sailed on made a point of paying him his share of the earnings. The local newspaper took up a collection. They raised $500. People expected this fisherman with no fingers would need the money to live on. Instead, Howard used it to set up a cigar shop. The shop did well. The following Christmas, Howard went into the newspaper office. He wanted to donate $500 to the families of fishermen who died at sea. It became a habit. Every year, Howard would give away extravagant amounts of food and money to folks who needed it. And every year, he'd send a shipment of food to Little River. He opened a tavern and entertained sailors by telling his story and picking up quarters off the bar using the flat of his hand. But something was missing. The story of his great adventure began to grow old. His days as a tavern keeper blended together 
Howard wondered if all the significant, exciting things that would happen in his life were in the past. He organized an expedition to the Klondike Gold Rush and sailed around the tip of South America and up to San Francisco. He didn't make it to Alaska. He fell out with the rest of the crew and took the train back to Gloucester. But the trip proved to Howard that he could still sail, even without fingers. Really, the problem had just been other people. That's when Howard's second act started. He decided to sail on his own across the Atlantic Ocean. It had been done before by five different men, although never by someone without fingers. He bought a 30-foot sailboat that he named the Great Western and left Gloucester Harbor in June 1899. Almost immediately, the wind died. Howard was stuck in fog. His right foot started to hurt. The pain climbed up his leg. For eight days, he went nowhere, sick with pain, unable to eat. Finally, he decided he had had enough and turned the Great Western back toward land. But the fog was so thick, he was afraid he'd hit rocks. Then, the wind came back. Howard started feeling a bit better. He ate something. The pain subsided. He put up the sails and headed out to the open ocean. One day, a passing steamship hailed Howard and asked if he needed anything. I had not heard the sound of a human voice for about 30 days. My own voice sounded so disagreeable when answering them that I made up my mind that I would never let an hour go by without saying something. So after that, whenever anything had to be done, I would give orders to do so and then go do it myself. On August 18th, 62 days after leaving home, Howard sailed into Gloucester, England. He drew a crowd. News of Howard's attempt to sail across the ocean had preceded him. There were speeches, toasts, a reception at a fancy hotel. Howard visited London and Paris before heading home. He didn't sail back. He booked passage on a Cunard ocean liner instead. And he was ready with stories to regale the newspapermen in Gloucester with when he got back. A couple of years passed. Howard got restless. In June 1901, he headed out again on his own. On the day he left, he held a press conference. A business house sent one of their clerks to me and wanted me to put their advertisement on my sale, promising me to give me adequate compensation. This I took as an insult. I'm not going for money, but for my own enjoyment. Had they given the Addison Gilbert Hospital $100, they could have covered my boat with ads. Howard got beaten back by heavy storms. Days at a time, he sat at the tiller in the gale, unable to take a break to sleep or eat. But when steamers came along and offered to take him aboard, he refused. On July 18th, he reached Portugal. It had taken him just 39 days, the record for a solo Atlantic crossing. At 24, Howard Blackburn managed to survive an unimaginable ordeal through the force of his will. 
and it had made him a celebrity. It would be perfectly understandable for him to stand behind his bar and retell the story for the rest of his life. But something drove Blackburn back out to sea. Something about that danger. Being alone against the ocean made him feel alive. And he liked having stories written about him in the newspaper when he got back. So, 20 years after coming back from the dead, he went out again and again to face the same ocean that had taken Tom Welch and thousands of others. And again and again, Howard Blackburn came back. That was Matt Frassica from the podcast The Briny. Peter Souza played the voice of Howard Blackburn. Howard Blackburn went on to other adventures, navigating inland waterways from the Hudson River to the Mississippi and around the tip of Florida. He died an old man in 1932, and crowds lined the streets of Gloucester to watch his funeral procession. You can learn more at thebriny.net. That's a wrap on our show this week. Next week, we'll talk about a recent study that found giving parents the opportunity to choose their kids' schools has increased segregation. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public's Radio. Radio.